New Linux tablets are here. Android 14 has arrived, sort of. Your calendar invite could have been used to hack you and much more. Welcome to Surveillance Port 130. Nice round number where we are dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news from the past week. I am Nathan from The New Oil. And I'm Henry from TechLore. This week, our promo segment has changed. I'm kidding. It's the same it's always been. We have Patreon for those who want to support us and get a little bit of something in return. For $5 a month, you can ask us a question in the Q&A, which we have some good questions this week. Or for $10 a month, you don't have to listen to this segment anymore. If you don't really care about the perks, but you still want to support us in a relatively privacy-respecting fashion, we have LibrePay. And then if you just want the maximum amount of anonymity and still want to support us, there is Monero, which is a cryptocurrency. It's a privacy coin. We don't see or know anything about you other than the fact that you contributed. And we see those contributions and it is appreciated. And we're getting kind of close. I'm just going to throw this out like one or two more times. Speaking of Monero, we got Monerotopia coming up next month. It's like three weeks away. It's going to be a great time. So if you haven't got your tickets yet and you want to attend, it'll be in Mexico City, May 5th, 6th, and 7th, I believe. Go ahead and check that out. And we have a discount code, no surveillance one, to get 10% off your tickets. Very cool. And now we're going to go into the highlight story. And this is from Pine64, who have released the Pine Tab V and the Pine Tab 2. Both tablets feature a 1200 by 810.1 inch IPS LCD panel with wide viewing angles, a sturdy metal chassis, two USB-C ports, one of which is USB 3.0, another is USB 2.0 with charging, a digital video out port, a front 2 megapixel and rear 5 megapixel camera, as well as a 6000 milliamp battery. Both come bundled with a magnetically fitted detachable backlit keyboard connecting via pogo pins using USB 2.0 that doubles up as the carry case and they're available in two hardware configurations, either 4GB of RAM and 64GB of eMMC flash storage or 8GB of RAM with 128 gigs of flash storage. Finally, the PineTab 2 and PineTab V both start at $159, which is super cheap. The real difference between the two resides on the inside. The PineTab 2 is ARM-based, which ships with working software and has solid Linux support that will only get better with time, and has an already established community of developers waiting for their units to arrive. The PineTab V is built upon a RISC-V SoC and holds much more promise, but comes without working software. The PineTab V is an experimental device geared towards developers and those who wish to explore the architecture. So if you're listening to this and you're interested in Linux tablets, the PineTab 2 is probably what you're going for. Pre-orders have already started starting April 13th, I believe in the US. And that's kind of it. This is probably not something that you should expect to be like your new daily driver tablet, but this is kind of a nice step forward. This is kind of like the Pine Phone. We're starting to see maybe the Linux mobile community start to form, and these devices are a very important milestone on that journey. They're also very cheap. So like $159 for a tablet is pretty cheap. Again, these are very low power devices, so don't expect much from them. But if you want one and you have some money to spare and you want to test it out, and maybe if you develop for this, that could be something really good and it might support the long-term Linux mobile community. And with that, we'll move on to data breaches. We're going to start off with SD Works, who shut down UK payroll and HR services after a cyber attack. So SD Works is an HR, which is human resources and payroll management company based out of Belgium that serves 5.2 million employees for over 82,000 companies. The article noted that there is a possibility that sensitive data was stolen. The company is still investigating. They haven't flat out denied it, but they are saying like, hey, it's too early to tell. We're still looking into it. If data was stolen, it could include tax information, government ID numbers, addresses, full names, dates of birth, phone numbers, bank account numbers, and more. If you're 
employer goes through this company, be sure to freeze your credit or keep an eye on your identity and we'll update you if we hear anything in the future. Next one is from the car company Hyundai, who has a data breach that exposed owner details in France and Italy. The data includes email addresses, physical addresses, telephone numbers, and vehicle chassis numbers, even for those who only booked test drives. Our next data breach comes from Cody, which is a uh, media management platform. You can like play movies, pictures, things like that, and kind of sort them and all, all that stuff. It's really popular. They are disclosing a data breach after their forum database was posted for sale online. I'm going to quote the article here. According to an announcement published by the platform on Saturday, cybercriminals stole the forum database by logging into the admin console using an inactive staff member's credentials. Once they gained access to the admin panel, they created and downloaded database backups multiple times in 2023. It was twice, once on February 16th and once on February 21st. So they're kind of being just a little bit sensational when they say multiple times, but they're technically not wrong. The data included public posts, private messages, usernames, email addresses, and hashed insulted passwords. The Cody team is planning to force password resets on all users just out of an abundance of caution. And of course, they're advising people should go ahead and change their passwords just to be safe. Like in in other services, if you reuse passwords, which you shouldn't be doing anyways, you should be using a password manager. I don't know if this is in response or if this is just coincidence, but Cody has also said they're going to be commissioning an entirely new forum. Like they're just going to break the old one and rebuild it even though there's no evidence that the forum like the actual server anything was compromised so yeah that i don't know if that was coincidence that like hey we got a new rebuild coming up anyways i don't don't know anyways they will also be sharing the exposed email addresses with have i been pwned so if you use one of those password managers like bitwarden for example that if you pay for premium it tells you like hey this your your credentials just popped up in a data breach then people will be notified that way too which i think is pretty neat Up next is an update to an older story, which is that cybercriminals have claimed vast access to Western digital systems. So the cybercriminals who breached data storage giant Western Digital claim to have stolen around 10 terabytes of data from the company, including a ton of customer information. The extortionists are pushing the company to negotiate a ransom of a minimum eight figures in exchange for not publishing the stolen data. One of the cybercriminals spoke with TechCrunch and provided more details with the goal of verifying the claims. The cybercriminal shared a file that was digitally signed with Western Digital's code signing certificate showing they could now digitally sign files to impersonate Western Digital. Two security researchers also looked at the file and agreed that it was signed with the company's certificate. They also shared several phone numbers allegedly belonging to company executives, and at least two numbers were called and voicemail greetings did match the names given. So yeah, Western Digital, things aren't looking super hot over there. Our next story, I think, is an an update. It falls in that timeline where we probably covered this story, but admittedly, it's not ringing any bells. The headline says, Lawyers cough up $200,000 after health data stolen in Microsoft Exchange pillaging. So this comes from the New York law firm Heidel, Pitoni, Murphy, and Bach. They're paying 200 k after a data breach in which ransomware attackers accessed an exchange server and stole sensitive data, including from hospitals... I guess like the hospitals were clients of these lawyers and the data included things like names, dates of birth, social security numbers, and more. The breach occurred in November of 2021, which the article notes was well after Microsoft exchange issued a patch. They issued two, two separate releases. The last one was in May. I'm going to quote the article here for this last bit. New York attorney general Letitia James, who brought the lawsuit against the lawyers blamed HPMB's poor data security practices for the privacy breach. In addition to paying the settlement fee, the law firm also agreed to implement a number of security measures, including encrypting private and health information, establishing a patch management program and performing pen testing to better protect private data in the future. The settlement also requires the law firm to hire a third party assessor to review its new InfoSec program and report back to the New York attorney general in one year and then annually for five years thereafter, unquote. 
All right, last data breach, KFC Pizza Hut owner discloses a data breach after a ransomware attack. This is an update to an older story, which comes from Yum Brands. But it's the owner of KFC Pizza Hut and Taco Bell. They're now sending data breach notifications to an undisclosed number of individuals whose personal data was stolen in a January 13th ransomware attack. The article notes that Yum had previously stated no customer data was stolen. Oh my god, that's always the pattern. I think we, we've talked about this. I think there's been like one or two incidents where they said there was no attack and there actually was no attack, but these companies always downplay this stuff and then it comes out. Actually, in, in this case, they might be telling the truth because data was names, driver's license numbers, and other ID card numbers. And I don't, like, nobody at Taco Bell has ever asked me for my driver's license number, so I think it might have been employee data that was stolen. I guess, oh yeah, you're right. So they say customer data was not stolen. So that's a Which very... Which is it's still kind of nitpicking. It's yeah, still people that's... who had their data <laughs> stolen, but you know. Yeah. Okay, with that, we'll move on to companies. We're going to start with a, what I think is a really interesting development for Windows 11. They're getting a new presence-sensing privacy setting. Quoting the article, Windows 11 is getting a new privacy setting that allows users to control whether applications can detect when actively interacting with the device. With these settings, you can now block or allow certain apps from accessing their presence sensors. This means you can have more control over your privacy and prevent apps from collecting and using your data without your consent. I thought I copied another note, but I guess I didn't. There there was another note how they mentioned this can also be used for privacy where uh, you can set the computer to detect Without using the camera, because I know Windows can already do this using the camera, which I don't like. But just from your usage patterns, it can detect like you've walked away from the computer and automatically lock it. What? What's the presence sensor? So it's a new setting that literally just detects. Oh, so it's not an actual, because I've never heard of this. So it's not like a sensor that's next to your camera that it's like the bathroom light that turns off automatically. I don't believe so. Here, let me see. Um, let me go ahead and pull up the article again. The new privacy setting is called Presence Sensing and allows you to configure whether applications can use APIs to determine if a user is active or inactive on Windows. Represents a sensor that detects whether a user is present, absent, or not interacting. Yeah, here's, here's the part that I meant to make a note of that I forgot. Presence detection can also have other practical uses. For instance, Microsoft explains that devices can be locked automatically when unattended to prevent sensitive files and other information. Oh, here we go. To maximize privacy, Microsoft does not collect images or metadata. All processing is done locally on the device's hardware. So there's that. Obviously, if you don't trust Microsoft, that will not do anything to allay your concerns. But in theory, this should be not at all a privacy concern. Google's launching the first public beta of Android 14. This is currently only available to Pixel 4a 5G, not the original 4, and newer devices, and only the Pixels. There's a lot of, like, small things. Anyway, let me just relay the privacy and security differences for Android 14, and then we'll move on to research. So, we've already covered this in the past, but Google is restricting sideloading with Android 14. And don't be scared, this doesn't impact Android or anything like that. It's just that by default, you won't be able to install apps that target an SDK version lower than 23, which was introduced 2015 with Android 6, which I believe is Marshmallow. Google explains that malware often uses SDK versions targeting old versions of Android to avoid restrictions that are found in versions like 23 and higher. This will effectively make it much harder to get malware on devices, even when bad actors manage to convince users to sideload an app rather than getting it from the Play Store. So they're not disabling sideloading, they're just restricting it to at least be more modern applications. And when we say more modern, we mean anything newer than like 2015. So um, I think this is overall very good for security. 
the second change, app developers can limit visibility of their apps to disability-focused accessibility service, which effectively blocks malware that uses the accessibility service from snooping on private data in things like your password managers or your banking applications. So hopefully those more, those more secure-oriented applications will implement this. And then the third big change is that you can now select photos and videos when sharing that permission with applications. So previously you could choose to share your photos with applications, but now you can select specific photos and videos that you want to make available to an application, just like iOS has had for a while now. And that's kind of it. So we'll see what happens and if anything new comes to Android 14, but this is in public beta. All right, with that, we'll move into research. We're going to start off with a story that's not really research per se. It comes from a marketing company. Well, they're not a marketing company. You guys may have heard of them. I think they're fingerprint.com or something. And their whole thing is they do device fingerprinting. And what makes them interesting is they have a public facing tool so you can see how it works and you can check your own fingerprint and see how recognizable you are. So they wrote this article called how smart app banners can be used to reveal Apple ID region. Quoting bits of the article, in this specific article, we present a technique for detecting an Apple ID region without permissions utilizing smart app banners. Apple introduced smart app banners with iOS 6 to help developers promote their native applications on the web. The banners appear at the top of a web page when viewed on an iOS device, displaying information about the application and providing a direct link to the app store for easy installations. They are designed to enhance the user experience and help developers drive more traffic to their iOS apps. So you've probably seen these. If you go to a website, like in the, the article, the example they use is Duolingo. If you go to Duolingo's website on your phone, you'll get a little pop-up that says like, hey, do you want to go to the the app store and download this app? Basically, they figured out that this smart banner, smart app banner, can detect your region. And depending on where you live, that might make you more fingerprintable. I don't think that they said that like that alone can definitely fingerprint you, but it definitely will narrow things down. So quoting the article again, take a region-specific iOS application such as Starbucks France, for example. These applications create a unique opportunity for attackers to leverage smart app banners to identify a user's Apple ID region, unquote. And they notice this will even work with a VPN, which makes sense because I don't know about you guys, but usually I pick a VPN that's like close to where I live and in the same country and stuff like that. So... Yeah, it's just it's just kind of interesting. It's another way to uh, track people. You know, it's it's another potential point of tracking that I didn't know of. I never thought about and um, is just something to keep in mind. I don't really have much more to add to that. I recommend you guys give it a read. Again, it's really straightforward. It's not like super technical, but it's interesting to be aware of. In our last research article, a new Bitdefender survey reveals that top cybersecurity challenges and concerns for businesses globally. The report is based on an independent survey and analysis of over 400 IT and security professionals, ranging from manager to chief information security officer who work in companies with 1,000 or more employees. The two findings that we found relevant to our audience, 42% of all professionals surveyed were told to keep a breach quiet when they knew it should have been reported. The U.S. led this number at 71%, followed by U.K. at 44%, then Italy, Germany, Spain, and France. More than half of businesses surveyed were breached in the last 12 months. So the numbers are pretty staggering here. And if you want to see some more of the stats, definitely check out the link in the sources down below. With that, we'll move into politics, and we're going to talk about a story that most of you have probably heard about if you've been following the news, because this has even made big mainstream headlines. This particular headline says, Discord leaks suspect charged with stealing and sharing military secrets. So for those of you who don't listen to the news, there are a ton of top secret documents that have been leaked online, mainly concerning Western strategy in the Russia-Ukraine war. I've heard, I haven't verified any of this myself, but I've heard that it includes things like... um 
locations of spies all around Eastern Europe, Ukraine's counterattack strategy in Bakhmut, things like that. So really, really big top secret stuff. And it appears to have first come from Discord and then from there I disseminated, I believe, to Telegram and then to 4chan and, you know, all the greatest hits made the rounds. So ultimately, the feds traced this back to a 21-year-old Air National Defense Guardsman who, I mean, his name's in the article, but just to, I don't know, I'm not going to name him just because, you know, innocent until proven guilty, although it sounds like it's pretty probably him. Access to the documents was part of his job. This is the most mind-blowing part. It appears that this was not politically motivated. Like, this was not like Edward Snowden or, um, you know, what's her name? Chelsea uh, Manning. Thank you. Yes. Chelsea Manning, where it's like, hey, I fundamentally disagree with things that are going on. I think people deserve to know about this. From what I keep hearing, I haven't seen this in any official articles, but from what I keep hearing, he was just chasing clout. He was trying to tell everybody how cool he was. I have a top secret clearance, blah, blah, blah. So he went and dug all this stuff up and dumped it into a private chat to prove what a badass he was. And I hope that clout really works out well for him as he spends the next 10 years in the brig. Sarcasm aside, the reason we're sharing the story is because we're starting to get some insight into how the feds were able to trace him. And one of the ways was they went to Discord, who logs literally everything. And this dude used his real name and address to pay for premium services like Discord Nitro probably or something like that. So they basically just subpoenaed Discord. Now, again, how it led to him, I don't know. We'll probably find out in the coming weeks. But yeah, they hit up Discord. They're like, hey, we need his data, his like billing information, etc. And they were able to trace it down to him specifically. The company noted that it has since deleted the classified content, banned the accounts involved with its distribution. I love this. And warned others who are still sharing the documents on other servers. Yeah. So uh, again, we'll keep you up with this. And I think this is a story worth following just to see how this stuff was figured out. I think that's always good information to know. Now, obviously we're not encouraging criminal activity or leaking classified documents of any kind, but it's, it's good to know how this data gets out there and what data is being collected and how it could be, you know, if, if the police can access it, then so can a cyber criminal who gets lucky and breaches Discord server. And then just as a lovely add-on to this story, the government now, in light of this, feels that they just aren't doing enough social media surveillance, and they are considering stepping it up. The next one is from Arkansas, which has made it illegal for minors to be on social media without parental consent. So it's now illegal for anyone in Arkansas under 18 to be on social media without asking their parents, according to a new bill signed by the state's governor on Wednesday. If a social media company fails to do this, it will be subject to $2,500 fines per violation and also pay for a family's legal fees if the family decides to sue. It's not very clear, however, how this bill will help, given that it is chock full of loopholes. So the bill states that it doesn't apply to news or public interest broadcasts that include website video reports or events, any news gathering organizations, any cloud service providers or internet service providers who provide links to social media platforms. An amendment introduced in the final days of negotiating the bill stated that subscription service providers and gaming services were exempt, but that social media companies that allow a user to generate short video clips of dancing, voiceovers, or other acts of entertainment in which the primary purpose is not educational or informative does not meet the exclusion under the laws. And for everyone else, we'll move on to FOSS, free and open source news. And this is pretty cool in my opinion. So Cryptomator 1.8.0 for Android came with some pretty cool stuff. There were some UI changes, but quoting the article, a less obvious change is that we now offer a new flavor called Cryptomator Lite. This version is built using a reproducible build technique, which has two advantages. 
Number one, you as a user can verify that the published source code matches the published binary, which in turn means that we didn't and couldn't add anything during build time. The other advantage is that this technique allows us to publish our app to stores like the main F-Droid repository, but sign it with our keys, which means we still have control over the signing keys, unquote. I definitely don't come down as hard on F-Droid as a lot of people in the privacy and security community do, but I do recognize that F-Droid has some problems, and I think it's really cool that Cryptomator is taking these kind of steps to solve them. And then one more note, starting with Cryptomator 1.8.0 for Android, we follow our desktop application. All newly created vaults will use AES GCM instead of AES CTR plus HMAC for file content encryption. That goes a little bit over my head, but I'm assuming it's an improvement. Really cool stuff coming out of Cryptomator. If you are a Cryptomator user, I wonder if there's a way to like upgrade your vault or if that's even necessary, but either way, good stuff. Next story is from XC, which has released an audit report. Now... Let's be very careful here with semantics. KeePass is just the open standard for password management. KeePass XC is a client that works with KeePass. This is not an audit for KeePass. It's an audit for the client for KeePass, which is KeePass XC. So KeePass XC is finally audited from a security researcher on January 19th, and it was done entirely for free. Because this was a volunteer effort, not everything was audited, only the core features, mainly database reading and writing and cryptography. The review found no major issues, but did issue a number of recommendations. You can read the whole PDF available in the link down in the sources. A couple things. I, I don't consider this a real audit in my eyes. Um, it's kind of... I'd call it an informal audit. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. It doesn't audit everything, and it's done by just an individual. So it's better than I nothing. I think that's more my thing, is it's... it's Because most audits usually don't cover everything, but it's more the fact that it was... From what I can tell, this sounds like it was just a real big fan who's like, hey, I, I know how to read code. I'll take a couple of days in my free time and give my thoughts. And, and I mean, it was a real good write-up. I did skim the write-up, but it's like, yeah, this was clearly not like a full, detailed, paid audit, so... Yeah, they do express in the article, though, how they'd like to do a full audit, but it requires funding, which they don't have. And so they leave some suggestions on like how you can maybe get KeePassXE to receive some funding from like the Open Source Foundation or something like that. I don't know what, what they were. This is based on memory. But yeah, this is overall good stuff. I think it's a step in the right direction, but I wouldn't be like putting a huge amount of emphasis on this either. But it's cool. I like it. All right, our next story comes from Calix OS, who has launched a new feature called Security Express, which is... um kind of like the opposite of an ESR, like an extended support release, where you can opt in to get security updates like as soon as they're available without the feature updates, but because they're they're streamlined, not streamlining, like putting these in the express lane for you. So be aware that they might be a little bit less stable. They're, it's almost like an alpha channel just for the security updates. So it's pretty cool for people who may have a high threat model and need those security updates like ASAP, even if it causes bugs in other parts of the OS. We'll see how it shakes out. This is brand new, but it's a pretty neat feature, in my opinion. So if you're a Calyx OS user, be sure to check that out and see if it's something you're interested in. Last FOSS story, super quick, super easy. OpenBSD has released version 7.3. I didn't see anything that was huge, but also I'm not an OpenBSD user, so maybe something in there is huge for all you OpenBSD users. So it's many smaller updates. Check out the changelog in the sources if you want to check those out. All right. And with that, we'll go into Misfits. And this was a story that kind of made the rounds this week. A mercenary spyware hacked iPhone victims with rogue calendar invites, researchers say. So this comes from Microsoft and Citizen Lab. And for those who don't know, Citizen Lab does 
fantastic work. You should definitely check into them. This is a company called Quadream, which is a very little known spyware vendor that develops zero-click exploit exploits, very similar to the NSO group with Pegasus. For those of you who didn't know, NSO is by a wide margin, not the only company out there. And Pegasus is not the only spyware out there. I do feel compelled to note because every time we talk about this stuff, people get really worried about like, well, how can I check if my phone's been infected? It's very unlikely. I'm not trying to like disparage anyone, but unless you are like a political activist in a repressed country or like a high profile investigative journalist, this is not run of the mill malware that they're just going to send out and deploy to anybody. Like they have to specifically target you and have a reason for doing it. But I mean, if you want to check anyways and just reassure yourselves, go for it. I don't care. But I just want to reassure people, unless you're high profile, this is probably not something you need to worry about. But it's still worth knowing about because this is targeting people that it shouldn't. Customers include Saudi Arabia, Bulgaria, Czechia, Hungary, Romania, Ghana, Israel, Mexico, Singapore, United Arab Emirates, and Uzbekistan. Notably, the malware studied used malicious calendar invites with past dates to infect devices. So, for example, uh, we're recording this on April 15th. It would send an invite for, like, March 10th or something like that. So your phone would kind of, like, I guess, like, automatically accept it. Or basically, because it was a past date, something about that would be so that it didn't trigger a notification. And since it was a zero click, without that notification, you had no way of knowing you were infected. Now, interestingly, this appears to be kind of older information. The exploit that this was using was fixed in March of 2021. I'm assuming if Citizen Lab just found out about this, this is probably not, like, it's probably coincidence is what I'm trying to say. I don't think that somebody like Apple knew about this exploit and fixed it intentionally because we're just now finding out about it. The malware was capable of recording phone calls, taking pictures, stealing files, tracking locations, and even deleting forensic traces of its own existence when it was done and they wanted to remove it. And that's another reason that I don't think you should be too worried about this because again, the exploit was fixed. Although I guess maybe it could still be lingering. I don't know, but it just kind of goes to show why privacy is important because how can they send you a calendar invite if they don't know who to invite? You know, things like that. And the other thing I was going to say is this just shows why it's important to keep your devices updated. And also, I think maybe we brought up security updates so much that people who, they, they just stopped watching, which is the good. Fantastic. Like, if you good. like do not believe in security updates, we're not the podcast for you. You should Guys, watch. Guys, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw this out there. We are open to being corrected. If we're factually wrong about something, by all means, shoot us an email. Let us know. Because we are wrong. We've issued corrections in the past. We've been wrong about things. It's in our template every week. Did we make a mistake last yeah. week? Yeah, it really is. But like, if you're going to fundamentally disagree with something like, you know, you should be using the most current OS or updates or, you know, like, I don't know, I don't even want to pull off it. But like, if you're going to disagree with something that we clearly are doubling down on, like, stop listening. I don't understand why you would drive yourself crazy by repeatedly listening to someone that you hate who you think is an idiot. Like, go do something. Go listen to go support someone else. Richmond homeowner says that find my iPhone app mistake was causing angry residents to come to his house. So this is from Texas, and they said that almost a dozen people kept knocking on his door at all hours of the day and night, claiming he stole their lost items because of what he said is a mistake on the Find My iPhone application. Scott Schuster, who has lived in his home since 2018, said this has been going on every few months over the last few years. Most of the people who show up are visibly upset or frustrated. One person caught on his doorbell camera even threatened to call the police. Schuster is not sure why the Find My iPhone application is pinging his address either. He's a software engineer with his own theories, but he has no way of knowing for sure. He is adamant that this is a huge mistake and worries that it could turn dangerous. He said he's just upset about the people showing up at his door because he has two young children, seven and nine, and worries for their safety. This is definitely interesting because it seems like no one knows what's going on. And for whatever reason, Apple's Find My iPhone is telling people that their stolen items are at this person's house. So 
All right, and our last story is just kind of commentary on something that's been going around lately. Henry didn't put any notes here, and he's more familiar with this than me, so I'm going to have him jump in and correct me where I'm wrong. But you may have seen recently, earlier this week, the FBI kind of randomly put out an advisory to beware of juice jacking, which is where, to my knowledge, this is probably pretty rare, but it's definitely was a thing where you can plug your phone into a public USB slot, like an actual USB slot, like you might find at an airport or a, you know, Starbucks or something. And if somehow, uh, if attackers have compromised that USB port, they can inject malware into your phone. So recently the FBI posted an advisory to like, Hey, be on guard about this. The interesting thing is now all of the experts in the space, like EFF, and I believe Chris Krebs also wrote an article, yep. and they're all kind of saying, like, this kind of came out of nowhere, and it's really sus. Not so much sus, just more kind of in, like, kind of the, okay, why are you bringing this up? As far as we know, this was, what, this was fixed in, you said, like, 2018 or something like that? This is not just, this is, like, almost, there was the DEF CON demo about this, like, almost a decade ago. And oh, so even older than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's like ridiculously old and it's been fixed now through software and physical differences. It, there's just no evidence that this is actually a problem, which is the weird thing about it. So the EFF wrote a whole article that's like, this is just not a problem and you should ignore the FBI. And the EFF even cites other things that are like the, e the FBI has like removed themselves as being a source for spreading this nonsense in 2019 to make it look like they weren't the ones who caused it. It's just silly. The FBI is being silly. That was what I meant when I said it was kind of sus is as far as we know, there hasn't been a case of this in like years or at least like if there it's there hasn't been like an increase or anything if it is happening. So it's just kind of like, again, like, OK, why are you bringing this up right now? Like, do you know something we don't? You're not telling anybody or. Yeah. At this time, as far as we know, it's safe to use public USB ports or at least, you know, no riskier than anything else. But well, there is a risk. It's possible, but like, it's just not a widespread issue. That's more what I mean. It's probably relatively safe. It's very unlikely, but... And now we're going to enter our Q&A. These come from our beloved patrons who keep this podcast going for free to the world. So we thank all of our patrons very much. And if you're watching this Q&A section, you're like, oh my God, I want to ask you guys a question. Well, you got to join our Patreon to do that. This week we have four questions and the latter two will be answered in shorts. So those would be coming out throughout the rest of the week, but we will be answering the question from Riddick and Chris right Right now, Riddick asks, do you guys read most or all available security privacy audits for apps that you use? Do you use unaudited apps? So I'll take that one first. This is kind of complicated. It really depends on where you're at and what your goals are. There are some very niche, low-key tools that don't really require much of an audit because they supply the use case that's desired. For example, a service that we reviewed on TechLore was Silent Link which is this like anonymous eSIM service that's honestly, frankly, like really sketchy when you access the website. There's no public team. There's like very little information about the service. There's just almost no information. But when I tested it out, I got an eSIM number that I could use on sites like Google. So it worked. It just doesn't really matter too much because nothing was going Nothing sensitive was going through SMS, so I just didn't really care. Where this kind of stuff matters and where oversight matters is in sensitive things that I really need to make sure are secure. Things like my messengers and my browsers and things like this, they need to be maintained by like a lot of real people who are dedicated to keeping me secure, personally. And in that case, yes, I will be looking for audits. I will be looking for community oversight. I will be looking for things that have passed the test of time. This is why when I see a new messenger, I'm like, I'm not going to move over to a new messenger, especially when it's a new messenger that just went open source last year. I don't even like quite have enough people 
poking holes in it yet where I can actually form an assessment of how this compares to something like Signal. Again, I'm not going to be using like a brand new service that just hasn't had the test of time alongside it for something like a messenger where I share such sensitive information with people. And regarding audits, it depends on what it is and if I feel like I have the expertise to read the audit. Generally speaking, I like to lean on people who are also able to read through audits probably better than I would and get their takes on it as well. So I kind of have a mix of like, yes, I primarily read through things myself, but also I like to lean on people who know more than me in certain areas to see what they think on the situation as well. Just to summarize that, yes, I always like to pretty much stick with very trusted things. I used to be more into like the niche products and like the low key stuff run by one or two people. Now I'm kind of leaning more towards the like, I want something more established and I'm willing to sacrifice maybe more privacy and security, but at at the cost of having like actual trusted people behind it. I'm sure you have a different approach. No, I'm actually mostly in the same boat. Well, I've never really been like super concerned with like the smaller, newer, nicher things. I'm not really like an early adopter type. Do I read most or all of the audits available? I read them if they come up. So like if they come up in uh, like, what was the one we just had earlier? Uh, Cryptomator, no, not Cryptomator, KeePass. So like that showed up in my RSX, uh, RSS feed and I did take a minute to peruse it. I'm sure you guys have figured this out by now, but like compared to a lot of our, our viewers and readers and listeners, I'm actually really not that tech savvy. Like compared to the average person, yes, I'm practically a genius. But, you know, compared to a lot of you guys, like, you know, I can copy and paste commands. That's about it. I do like to read the audits, but a lot of the time they're just super technical and go way over my head. I really like the ones who give you a broad view and then go into the technical. So at least I can read the overview and understand like, hey, here's a general gist of things that we found. And I'm like, all right, cool. That I understand. Do I use unaudited apps? Yeah, probably. Like I've been using KeePass for years, KeePass XE, and they just got an informal audit. Like Yeah, I will use unaudited apps because kind of like Henry was saying, I rely on the expertise of the community and specifically people I trust in the community. Like look at Telegram. Telegram has tons of users, but they're still garbage. So just because it's popular doesn't necessarily mean I'm just going to like, oh, well, everyone's using it. I guess I will. But I, I do have people that I trust who I believe are knowledgeable, who I believe are capable of being objective, relatively objective and unbiased, who I trust their opinions, that I will ask them like, hey, what's your opinion of this app? I think that kind of answers it. I prefer, definitely prefer to use things that have been audited, that have a good reputation, that I can kind of understand what they're doing and what their shortcomings are. But, you know, it's really a case by case basis. Okay. And then our second question came from Chris. And Chris says, how private is using a tool like Simple Login with a custom domain? Wouldn't using the same domain for emails on websites make it easier to identify you across the web? Okay. I wrote a blog post recently about custom domains and how to use them. I don't have any proof of this, but I strongly suspect that domain alone is not a way that you are tracked across the web. So we got to real quick here. We got to differentiate automated tracking versus targeted tracking. The automated tracking is automated. It's there's no human behind it. It's just the system automatically like, Hey, these two guys have the same IP address. They might be the same person, things like that. Targeted tracking is when, you know, someone from the CIA or the FBI is sitting there and actually looking at your data and saying, I think these two are the same person. If you're up against targeted tracking, yes, using a custom domain will make you stick out like a sore thumb. But if we're talking about automated tracking, I don't think anyone's targeting domain names because 70% of people are using Google. Most everyone else is using Yahoo or MSN or AOL or AT&T, whatever. So I don't think it makes sense for companies from a financial perspective to look at just the domain because you already have, if 70% of people are using Google and you have 10,000 people 
you now have, what is that? 7,000 people are all using Gmail. That is not helpful. They're going to be looking for people who are using the same email, like chris at gmail.com, you know, for example. So I don't think they're tracking the actual domain. I think they are tracking the full email. Even Facebook, the Metapixel, when we first started talking about that, one of the earliest stories we covered said that your email address was getting hashed and then sent back to Meta. And that means that even the slightest, even if it has the same domain name, if you have, you know, that doctor at customdomain.com, you use a different email for everything, basically, is what I'm saying. If you do that, even though it's the same custom domain, it's a different prefix, it's not going to be the same hash. So I feel like I'm getting wordy. But yeah, no, in my personal opinion, and I want to reiterate, I don't have proof of this. This is just me speculating. But to me, it doesn't make sense why they would track just the custom domain because there's not enough variance out there to make it worthwhile. It's much more worthwhile to track the actual email address because most people only have one or two email addresses anyways. They have like a serious one and then like a garbage one for like newsletters and crap. So you're going to get like 99% of people with tracking the actual full email, in my opinion. You got any thoughts? Oh, no, I think to me, this speaks to like, definitely like you need to make sure you have threat modeling in mind here, because if you have like a business domain and you have a public business and you want to make sure like everything's tied into the same ecosystem, then, you know, at that point, you know, I'd be more concerned about security less than privacy. And it probably wouldn't matter too much if you're using your business's domain to register for things. I don't think that's a big deal. If you're someone who's like chasing anonymity for your accounts, then yeah, like I, I, that would probably be like your weakest link. You know, if you have this whole persona that lives, you know, in like Tor sessions and you would otherwise be registering for everything using simple login domains or something like that. But now you're using like one central domain for everything. That's now kind of like the thing that links together all your accounts. So that would be your weakest link. So those are kind of my thoughts there. I think it comes down to threat modeling. And I did have a question because I haven't tested custom domains and simple login. Can you still select simple login domains if you link a custom one on simple login. Yes. So there you go. So on a case by case basis. So you get it in addition to, and that's actually what I do is like, if this is an important account that I don't want to lose access to, then I'll make, you know, whatever at customdomain.com. But if it like, I'm just signing up for a newsletter or a free trial or something. And I'm like, yeah, I really don't, I'm going to shut this off in 10 minutes when I get sick of it. Then I'll just generate a, you know, whatever random at simplelogin.co or whatever. Got it. So that's actually, there you go. That Right there, this ties into the threat model. I think the, the way Nate uses it is really solid. Yeah. So let's say you have like a personal account and because that's the whole like selling point for me for a custom domain is that you actually own your email. So if you switch to a different email provider, you don't have to change the email for your accounts. So like if you... You know, your personal bank accounts, you're not planning to switch those anytime soon. They already have your personal information. It's fine if you have maybe your custom domain and you own that and then you have those accounts tied to your own domain. And then maybe for like a disposable account that you don't give a crap about that you don't need linked to yourself, then you use something like the simple login alias because it's still an option. So that's probably my approach to this if I was to do this, but I don't use custom domains and simple logins, so... All right, and then just to kind of preview the shorts, so make sure to stay subscribed. We're going to have a question from Potty who asks, after 130 episodes of surveillance support, what are the main takeaways for you and what lessons did you learn? Nate and I will probably do individual responses to that, so we'll have two answers for Potty. And then Caption8169 asked about security for like banks and brokerage accounts, and we will probably get back to that in just one short. So we'll probably have three shorts this upcoming week before we come back next week for the next surveillance support 131. 
And on that note, that is it for the week. So there are new Linux tablets here for those of you who are early adopters and want to contribute to that community. Android 14 is starting to roll out. It's, uh, again, first public beta, so probably shouldn't run out and grab it unless you're, again, an early adopter. But if you are, hey, you know, it's here. Calendar invites could have been used to hack you. Thankfully, that has been patched, but it's just a reminder that we always need to stay on guard and defend our information and much, much more. As always, we will keep you updated on any of these stories if we hear anything about them, and we'll bring you a whole new set of stories next week. Our promo segment this week, just a reminder that you can support us and keep us going via Patreon. For $5 a month, you can be one of the people to ask a question. For $10 a month, you no longer have to listen to this segment and you get to hear some additional thoughts that we occasionally allude to. If you are not interested in the rewards, but you still want to support us, then we have LibrePay. Their terms of service do not allow us to give out rewards, but we still appreciate their support regardless. And of course, if privacy is your absolute top concern, then we have Monero. It's anonymous cryptocurrency. We don't see or know anything about you, but we do see the support and it helps very much. So thank you all of you. And again, possibly the last reminder on the topic of Monero. Monerotopia is coming up real soon in Mexico City. We hope to see you there. You can get 10% off using our code NOSURVEILLANCE1. Thank you again for listening to the surveillance report. The last thing we want to ask of you, as always, is to share the podcast around. Make sure you are subscribed. Give us a rating if you're on a platform where that's an option. We want privacy and security to reach as many people as possible. And everything you do, comments, likes, shares, ratings, etc., everything helps. Every little bit helps. So thank you guys again for listening, and we will be back next week.